From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. COVID-19 has been disruptive for everyone, but the data shows it's hit people of color the hardest. With COVID specifically, many of our patients are working in essential jobs in the service industry. Many of our patients are also living in multi-generational households, and those who are undocumented don't have access to federal benefits. So for many of our patients, if they're out of work, they're out of money. What work is being done to solve the inequities in healthcare that the pandemic has laid bare? Then an expert gardener answers your gardening questions. We have a backyard vegetable garden that has been fallow for a number of years. And uh, we're wondering what we can do this fall to make a better vegetable garden come spring. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Black and Latino Coloradans are getting sick and dying from COVID-19 at higher rates, and they disproportionately feel the impact of the pandemic-sparked recession. It's an issue that we've been following through the pandemic, and today we're going to take a closer look. Let's start with CPR health reporter John Daly, who found community groups are stepping in to help. On a recent Friday in Denver's North Park Hill neighborhood, a stream of people line up in cars to get a nasal swab. This is going to go up your nose. And find out if they have the coronavirus. Christine Springs is here with her four-year-old granddaughter, Zanaya. Springs is feeling fine, but needed a test to get some dental work done. I could get the results from them and take them to my dentist. And how has everything been going during the COVID? It's been kind of depressing, but, you know... Gotta do what we gotta do. Stay safe. This drive-up testing site helps fill a gap, providing quick and easy testing in a diverse neighborhood with a large black population. Deirdre Johnson runs the Center for African American Health, which hosted the event. She says in recent months, community collaborations like this are spreading. We've expanded to other partners and now have a nice framework of Testing sites happening in northeast Denver as well in the we- as well as the west side. The pandemic caught many health workers and political leaders by surprise. It took time for them to realize how heavily black and Latino residents were impacted. But given the historic realities, doctors and health advocates say that could have been anticipated. Initially, it was very it was a very slow response. We had a lot of challenges. That's Dr. Pamela Valenza, chief health officer at Clinica Tepiak. It's a community health center serving the largely Latino Globeville neighborhood. Early in the pandemic, the clinic was swamped with patients, including staff members who had COVID-19 symptoms. They needed treatment, protective gear, and testing supplies. But Valenza says... Overall, there was a general lack of coordination in a response, a general lack of leadership. That, she says, left health centers to figure it out on their own. Since then, things have gotten better. 
CEO Jim Garcia says the clinic now partners with the state health department for a free drive-up test site at the Globeville Community Church next door. We hear a lot about the big testing sites like at the Pepsi Center. I would say that for communities of color, that, that may not be the optimum. He lists language barriers, cultural barriers, worries about immigration enforcement and transportation as obstacles to getting tested. In recent months, the state health department increased testing availability and access. There are now more than 50 free community testing sites, like the one Garcia oversees. He says that's much more convenient for many families. We're doing it by appointment, trying to control the flow of traffic in the neighborhood, but uh, we want to make it available both to our patients and to the broader community. Convenient testing is critical in communities of color, where a higher percentage of people have gotten sick. For instance, at one point in May, more than half of hospitalized COVID-19 patients were Latino. When Dr. Jandell Allen Davis, president and CEO of Craig Hospital in Englewood, began hearing of the emerging health disparities. I have to tell you sadly that my somewhat realistic and cynical comment was, this surprises you, why? The pandemic has magnified a long-standing reality that people of color suffer more from health conditions that put them at risk for a severe case of COVID-19, like diabetes, obesity, and high blood pressure. Alan Davis says those result from deep inequities in things like income, housing, education, the root causes. We've got to actually focus on the social determinants of health. A Colorado Health Foundation poll finds warning signs. 28% of Latino residents fear they won't be able to afford food for their family. 38% of black Coloradans worry about losing their home because they can't pay the rent or mortgage. Here's Deirdre Johnson with the Center for African American Health. The one thing we Im- immediately saw was just a bump in unemployment, a bump in food insecurity. I'm very worried about the next wave of evictions. Her center raised and gave out more than $82,000 to families who needed rent and food assistance, prescriptions and emergency funds. Johnson says it's a good start, but deeper economic, society-wide change is needed. If we don't do things really fundamental to change how our systems work, we'll keep having these disparities, and then the next COVID will wreak the same havoc. With all the needs the pandemic has exposed in a momentous 2020, she says the time to fix systemic inequities is now. I'm John Daly, CPR News. We're going to talk more about these health disparities and the efforts underway to improve them. Dr. Pamela Valenza, who we just heard from in John's story, is the chief health officer at Clinica Tepeyac in Denver. Welcome, Dr. Valenza. Thank you for having me. Karen McNeil Miller is the president and CEO of the Colorado Health Foundation. Hi, Karen. Hi. Thanks for joining this important conversation. And Jill Hunsaker-Ryan is the executive director of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Hi, Jill. Hi, thanks for having me. Pamela, Clinica Tepeyac serves a Latino population that has suffered immensely in the pandemic. Who are your patients and how do they differ from the general population when it comes to COVID-19? So our patients at Clinica Tepeyac are about 96% Latino. Uh, 88% of our patients prefer their services in Spanish. And we are a little bit unique among the federally qualified health centers in that 70 to 75% of our patients are also uninsured. Um, So within that, we face unique and significant barriers with our uninsured Latino community, 
getting access to healthcare, getting access to quality healthcare, and specifically with this pandemic, a lot of other challenges that patients are facing are just significantly compounded. And without sharing names, obviously, can you give us an example of the obstacles to healthcare as well the folks you serve are facing? Sure. Um, so we have, you know, within that uninsured population, there is a percentage of those patients that are also undocumented. And so throughout the pandemic and pre-pandemic, with the public charge rule that went into effect in February earlier this year, there are significant concerns, one, about presenting documents of identity to a healthcare facility, documents of identity to, to any facility in general. Um, we know that there's been continued ICE activity during the pandemic and with many of our patients uninsured, undocumented, or otherwise facing language barriers or finding health centers that are culturally responsive and appropriate for their care. Um, with COVID specifically, um, many of our patients are working on the front line, working in essential jobs in the service industry. Many of our patients are also living in multi-generational households. And those who are undocumented don't have access to federal benefits such as the COVID paid sick leave or emergency FMLA. And so for many of our patients, if they're out of work, they're out of money, not to mention the mental health stress, depression, anxiety, trauma, and grief, specifically with those numbers that you mentioned of those high rates of COVID within the community and high rates of death. We've seen that within our patients and also within our staff, many of whom are also from the community. And Jill, the impact of COVID-19 on communities of color, it's not unique to Colorado. For example, a recent CDC report shows that 75% of COVID-19 deaths among people younger than 21 years old are in the Black, Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native communities. We've spoken before on the show about why they're at greater risk, but can you elaborate on the reasons? Absolutely. So, The Department of Public Health and Environment recognizes that these disparities are not the result of individual choices, but rather the institutional and systemic barriers that existed long before the pandemic. And unfortunately, you know, the pandemic really exploits all of society's vulnerabilities and makes health disparities specifically pronounced. So some examples of why these disparities exist people of color disproportionately employed in positions where they cannot work from home, like the service industry, manufacturing, processing, construction. Um, People of color are less likely to have a medical home, health insurance, and a provider they trust. And as a result, may delay care if they get sick. And then, you know, there's, there's new evidence around things, for example, like people exposed long-term to air pollution and then are infected with COVID-19 may have worse health outcomes. And we know lower income communities tend to live next to highways because housing prices are lower. So it's really because these social and economic inequities are so in deeply embedded into our systems that, you know, we can measure poor health outcomes by race and ethnicity, and they show up in the COVID pandemic. And this is important what you're saying here, that these disparities, they existed before the pandemic. The pandemic is highlighting them. What is being done at the state and local level to close those gaps, Jill? I'll talk about a few of our efforts to date. We have better data reporting now, so we can really measure disparities, um, particularly in hospitalizations, You probably know that the governor signed an executive order to make testing more affordable or free of charge to residents across the state to help reduce testing disparities, ensure that everyone has access to testing. 
We are getting ready to do a statewide communications campaign with prevention messaging. And we did a survey all summer of different communities, communities of color, rural communities, to determine which prevention messages really resonate with which groups. We'll do those in Spanish as well. We also provide a lot of our materials in many different languages, and we have folks that do our our case investigation and contact tracing that speak Spanish and other languages so that we're able to help them understand what it means if they get a positive test result or if they need to quarantine. And then finally, two examples that we're really proud of. There was legislation passed, including whistleblower protections for employees who file complaints against employers for failing to comply with public health orders. And then the adoption of legislation to ensure all Colorado workers, regardless of status, industry, or form of employment, are able to earn paid sick leave. And Karen, the Colorado Health Foundation just released the results of a poll of Coloradans that say the COVID-19 pandemic is their top concern. And 88 percent of Black respondents listed the economic impact of the pandemic as their main worry. The health outcomes we're talking about have a mental health component to them, don't they? Absolutely. As both Pam and Jill have explained, these conditions and these barriers and circumstances for communities of color have existed in a chronic state, and COVID has just made it more acute. But certainly, if you are a family that is struggling with income, struggling with how to get childcare when you are still required to go to work, struggling because you live in perhaps close quarters or a multi-generational family. All of those things create stress. And stress is a debilitating health issue. And so low-income families are resilient, or families living with low income, I'll say, have always displayed resiliency and have been called on to do it, have been exacerbated to do it in this COVID environment But yet, even resilient communities reach a breaking point, and that mental strain is is showing. Pamela, you mentioned before that some of your patients, especially those who are undocumented, fear going to public testing sites out of concern that ICE or other immigration agencies may lurk there. Has there been an effective way of communicating how testing sites work for immigrants in a way that puts people more at ease? Yes, I think one of the challenges that we've seen with our patients with testing sites is really patients not knowing where to go, how to go, going to somewhere that's unfamiliar. And so there has been messaging both in English and in Spanish out to the community. I think many of the community health centers had been advocating to their patients about the benefits of testing and and directing those patients to testing centers where they can get served um, and where they can get tested. I do think that it's still an issue of feeling comfortable and a feeling of safety and security within that environment. And so we opened up a community-based testing site in partnership with the CDPHE to specifically serve the Spanish-speaking Latino community. Being a federally qualified health center that's been serving this community for the last 26 years, um, we're hoping to improve that access specifically for this community. We've heard a lot about the social inequities and how those contribute to poor health outcomes. But what are some of the solutions that Clinica Tepeyac has implemented to better serve your patients in the pandemic? Very early on in the pandemic, like many other health centers, we transitioned to telehealth services 
as we realized we couldn't serve the number of patients within the walls of our health center that we could prior to the pandemic. However, there are many patients as well who have technology illiteracy or really don't have stable access to a stable internet connection and were unable to partake in audiovisual telehealth visits. And so we are also performing telephone visits. Fortunately, under the COVID emergency funding, under the CARES Act, we were able to get reimbursement for those COVID visits and for telehealth visits under Medicaid and private payers that were previously not getting reimbursed. However, that state funding for telehealth reimbursement is only secured through June of 2021. So that's still to be determined when and if this funding is going to be continued and what that looks like for our community. We also were providing free blood pressure monitors, free glucometers, free pulse oximeters for patients so that they could better manage their health conditions at home if they had high blood pressure, if they had diabetes. We're going to be starting drive-by services for patients as well so that they can be seen more outside of the clinic that's faster. We are a very small health center and have limited space to separate out well and sick patients. We did start up a testing tent and a respiratory tent out back behind our clinic for any patient who was sick very early on in the pandemic. And we have providers rotating through seeing well patients in person, doing virtual visits and functioning as a sick provider doing COVID testing. And Jill, the health providers at Clinica Tepeyac all speak Spanish, but the National Institute for Healthcare Management reports that just 5.8% of physicians and 6.0% of psychologists identify as Latino. How does the lack of diversity of medical providers affect the care that people of color receive? You know, that's a that's a really good question. And I think that it does affect quality of care from the aspect of this notion of cultural competency. And that means, do you have providers that not only speak the language, and if they don't speak the language, they can use a language line to communicate, but do they really understand the cultural nuances in a way that they're able to provide the best care? And it's not only an issue in the healthcare setting, it's also an issue in the public health workforce. And it's one of the goals that we have at the state health department is to have a more diverse workforce that's able to really increase our level of cultural competency. And CDPHE actually addressed this in an open letter talking about the ways that health outcomes are rooted in structural racism. And the letter says, systemic persistent racism is a public health issue. When the color of your skin correlates with your well-being and longevity, that is a public health injustice that must be addressed. We at CDPHE are determined to be part of the solution. Jill, what is the diversity of staffing within CDPHE at the highest levels and what's being done to add diversity and inclusion? Absolutely. I mean, when you're an organization, it's important that you have diversity throughout the organization, including in leadership. And, you know, we have some diversity in our leadership, but I don't think we have nearly enough. And so A couple of months ago, we joined the American Public Health Association in calling racism a public health crisis. And it's everything we've said here today. It's when you look at health outcomes and you can actually measure them by race and ethnicity, right? Because we know race is a social construct. It's not a biological construct. And the fact that you can measure anything by race, you know, what is it really a proxy for? And when you think about the determinants of health 
which are economics and education and access to healthcare and access to everything else. When there are inequities in those determinants of health, then you see that show up in people's health outcomes. And so we're in the midst of creating a strategic plan for our organization. One of the goals in that is that we are have a more diverse workforce at all levels, and we will set targets and, and hold ourselves accountable to those outcomes. Karen, the Colorado Health Foundation and other philanthropic organizations are working to fill some of the gaps in the COVID-19 medical response across the state. Besides funneling resources directly to medical providers, where do you see other needs? The needs that have already been discussed still persist. So many philanthropic organizations like the Colorado Health Foundation have been working in those spaces of affordable housing, food access, wealth creation for families, job preparation, and have continued to do that, but at a greater extent during COVID. For instance, it is not typical that we would give direct assistance for rent, but we've done quite a bit of that. Since the start of COVID, the, for instance, the Colorado Health Foundation alone has invested $27 million into the community that is specifically COVID-related, and it goes not just to organizations like Clinica Tepeyac, but to the public health departments across the state, to particularly school systems across the state that have high rates of children with free and reduced lunch, homelessness, food pantries, food assistance, organizations that are trying to get technology into the hands of young people who don't have it, trying to get them broadband access trying to help with transportation issues for people that are frontline workers that still have to get to work, yet don't want to take public transportation. And so the areas that philanthropy has been trying to fill in for have been varied and are across the entire spectrum, not of just the health impact of COVID, but the financial, social, emotional, and well-being impact across Colorado's communities. We're talking with Karen McNeil Miller of Colorado Health Foundation, CDPHE's Jill Hunsaker Ryan, and Dr. Pamela Valenza of Clinica Tepeyac about some reasons that people of color have been hit hardest by COVID 19 and possible ways to improve healthcare disparities. Pamela, your clinic has benefited from state funding and grants from the Colorado Health Foundation. Do you feel like clinics like yours are receiving sufficient support from the state or federal government? I would say yes. At this point, um, we've had a longstanding relationship with the Colorado Health Foundation, and we've received significant federal and state supplemental funding during the COVID pandemic. The concern is really what happens next. As we have seen throughout the pandemic, we've had a lot of patients who are facing financial insecurity from losing their jobs, from being in a workforce that's not currently being used right now. And so that leads to a decrease in revenue for our health center. And due to the majority of our patients being uninsured, we don't have the traditional streams of revenue such as Medicaid or private payer systems that many other health centers have. And many of the federal funding and state funding is only secured through a certain point in time. And the state fiscal year for 2021 and 2022 is expected to have a $1.5 billion shortfall after impacts from COVID-19. And so that potentially could affect our 
budget proposal for continued community health center funding in the state. So that is coming up this November and is certainly a concern on the minds of many working in the community health center field. There's a lot to consider in the future. Governor Polis recently announced the state COVID-19 health equity response team will dissolve soon. And this group's experts, many of whom are people of color, advised the governor and CDPHE on blind spots in COVID-19 health care and recommended steps to improve outcomes. Jill, why disband this task force now, especially when state data show disparity gaps still exist and another wave is expected with cold weather season coming up? Yes. Well, like many of the other task forces that have been developed around COVID-19 through the governor's office, this one was created to provide recommendations in response to health inequities during COVID-19. And based in part upon the equity response team's recommendations, we have been able to make tremendous strides in demographic data collection and the way we collect data, accessibility of testing, And we are moving forward on an information campaign designed in part to resonate with historically marginalized communities. And we're just so thankful for the time and commitment that they put into these efforts. And, you know, despite the fact that this group won't be meeting permanently, we will continue to prioritize health equity in our response. The Office of Health Equity is a permanent part of CDPHE, and they have an appointed health equity commission that they meet with regularly. You know, we're also prioritizing equity in our vaccine planning by including members of the equity response team, the Center for African American Health, Colorado Cross Disability Coalition, and other community leaders. And let's talk a little bit more about a vaccine. The process has become politicized. Karen, how is the Colorado Health Foundation working to ensure a vaccine is distributed equitably? Well, we will be working with, I'm sure, CDPHE, with the state, with partners such as Clinica Tepiac, particularly, I'd say, uh, the Immunization Coalition, to make sure that there's an equitable distribution of the vaccine made available and that we get messages out to communities who may be hesitant to avail themselves of the vaccine to address their concerns and help promote that they would be able to do it and be able to get one when they decide to. And Jill, what steps is CDPHE taking to ensure an equitable rollout of the vaccine once it's deemed safe and is available? So at CDPHE, we have a committee called the Governor's Expert Emergency Epidemic Response Committee. Uh, It's in statute, and the committee is a group of experts that are appointed to advise the governor in the case of an epidemic or a pandemic. And so this group has a subcommittee that is looking at national recommendations around prioritization of vaccine when it comes out. What we do know is that it will take a while to ramp up the manufacturing, and so it will come out first in smaller doses, you know, that will be allocated to states, and then we'll gradually get more and more doses. So we need to have a tiered system. So they, the subcommittee is considering national recommendations, but then considering the nuances of Colorado and what's unique to our state. The Office of Health Equity is sitting on that subcommittee So we can look at um, how to prioritize different populations around things like burden of disease or critical workforce. Nationally, the recommendation is that the first group are healthcare workers, and then there are several tiers from there. 
And Karen, historically, we've seen skepticism and distrust around vaccines by people of color and lower vaccination rates among people of color as well. Can you talk to me more about why that distrust exists and what the Colorado Health Foundation is doing to combat that? Well, we want to understand more about that distrust as well. So we are in the next few weeks, we'll be launching another survey amongst particularly people of color and those populations that have traditionally low vaccine rates to find out why specifically to the COVID vaccine, what would be their hesitancy? Some of it is cultural. It could be that people come from a culture where that's not the norm. In some communities, there's there's still distrust of medical systems and healthcare systems. There's still distrust from historical and legacy experimentation on minorities and not wanting to be part of that. And sometimes it's just a matter of it not being readily available and accessible to them. And so it requires them to go out of their way to get the vaccine. And so then just choose not to. And with the regular flu season coming up in just a few months, how is the Colorado Health Foundation working with partners to provide care for COVID-19 during that flu season? We certainly, and I think everyone on this call, are fearful of the intersection of flu season and COVID. And so we certainly don't just want to have the, the COVID vaccine will be, won't be available soon in the next few months. But we can do is immunize for the flu so that that may not escalate into greater COVID cases. So we will be working with those same partners and stakeholders. And Jill, Karen is describing a sort of double whammy with the regular flu as well as COVID-19 at a time when the state budgets must tighten. How does the state rise to the challenge of improving public health in communities of color with a state budget in tatters? Yeah, that's such a good point. Well, several ways. I mean, first of all, I feel like, you know, in the budget, we have prioritized issues around COVID, like getting increasing numbers of flu vaccinations and making those available to a larger number of people that usually take the flu vaccination. Colorado's immunization rate for flu is about 50%. So there's certainly room for improvement there. So we did get additional funding for both vaccine and for a campaign to really promote people getting their flu vaccine. It's very important that people are vaccinated for flu because what we don't want to have is flu patients and COVID patients competing with each other for hospital beds. So if you're immunized against the flu, um, you protect those around you and you help break that chain of transmission. But, you know, in general, with a decreasing state budget, We still need to prioritize the health inequities that we see, and you don't necessarily need a state budget sometimes to have meaningful strategies. So I mentioned at CDPHE, we're doing a strategic plan. For example, we're looking at our procurement rules and how do we make it easier to contract with community-based organizations that serve some of these communities because they're closer to the communities, they have better cultural competency, uh, but we don't wanna have our administrative processes be so onerous um, that that's hard to do. You know, the other thing is we have funding, um, we have federal funding for health issues in a lot of areas. And I think we need to do a better job of investigating, monitoring and reporting health inequities, their root causes, and best practices from around the nation and really 
get that information out to communities, to policymakers. Um, so I'm optimistic that even with the reduction in the state budget, through prioritization, through tools like strategic planning and through partnerships, I just think that we we can get a lot done. Well, I just want to thank you all so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. That's Dr. Pamela Valenza, Chief Health Officer at Clinica Tepeyac, along with Karen McNeil-Miller, CEO of the Colorado Health Foundation, and Jill Hunsaker-Ryan, Executive Director of CDPHE. They're working to close gaps in health care for communities hardest hit by the pandemic. Gardening has been a solace for many people during the pandemic, but even the weather this year has thrown some curveballs. So after the break, we're asking an expert gardener how to give your plants a little extra TLC this fall. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News will carry special coverage of the Senate Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Coverage begins Monday morning. Access to this important story is an essential part of our commitment to keep you informed. For those listeners who want to follow our regular daily programming during special coverage, CPR will offer our regular schedule of programming on HD radio at 90.1 FM Channel 2 in Denver and online at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. After a summer of heat, wind, smoke, and even an early snowstorm, it's finally harvest season, although it may not feel like it as parts of the state hit record highs Thursday. We've got garden and landscape expert Fatima Imad of Denver's Frontline Farming and Mile High Farmers here to answer your questions. Hi, Fatima. Hi, Avery. Excited to be here to honor our plant relatives with you all this morning and to acknowledge the land that we're on. So I want to begin with a land acknowledgement to the Arapaho, the Apache, the Ute, the Puebla, and the Cheyenne and Shoshone um, on whose land we sit here in Colorado. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We're so glad to have you. You work with community gardeners, urban farmers, and run a landscaping business, among other things plant-related. And before we get to questions that were sent to us, let's talk about some of the interesting things growing in the gardens you work with. Yeah, so I think this season um, during the pandemic, we've really thought about um, food in a different way and how we use it and how we preserve it. So one of the things we've thought a lot about this season is things that are already growing around us that um, we often don't harvest or think to eat. And we say a lot of times at our farms that one man's weed is another man's cultural delicacy. So I want to encourage um, listeners today to think about the purslane that's growing in your yard that's super highly nutritious, um, lamb's quarter, and different types of things that um, you can already find growing. And then with a lot of this climate shift, we've thought a lot about what are different things we should be growing. Certainly a lot of the common vegetables we think about as summer plants don't really love this 100-degree weather. So a couple years ago, we shifted a little bit into looking at some southern crops and have been growing sweet potatoes and peanuts. Um, struggled a little with peanuts, didn't get long enough season last year, but just harvested our beautiful sweet potatoes yesterday and pretty easy thing to grow, buying a sweet potato at the store, starting it early in February um, and water and soil, and you can grow your own slips and plant those out early and um, get something different. So those are a couple of ideas I have. And Fatima, let's get to our first listener question. 
Hi, I am Marjorie Chittur. I am 9 years old. My family is a fan of Colorado Matters and we love plants. I have five green giant tuja trees, all turned brown this spring summer and have been like that all through the summer. Last year they were very green and grew 3 inches too. Why so? Thank you. Hi Madhvi, how cool are you? I wish I was more like you when I was younger and thanks for caring about um our plant relatives. So that's a great question. Um you know, why are evergreens and why does it happen that they brown? It could be a variety of factors. Oftentimes browning in evergreens um and with a plant like thujas which are often used for accents um uh can happen from really extreme weather conditions um and a lot of times has to do with underwatering so first i want to ask you to really look at your thuja tree and if you can bend the branches and they break it's probably not a good sign if all of them are doing that the whole tree might be dead but if you're pulling them and they're still flexing then it's got some life in it if there's certain parts that are bending and breaking you might want to cut and prune that out another thing you might want to look at is to see because oftentimes when we buy trees they'll still be wrapped in burlap and sometimes they don't recommend you to take it off and i think that's not a good tip for Colorado maybe in some regions where the burlap can slowly dissolve um away but here we find that it often freezes and just holds the root ball so maybe um your trees might still be wrapped in that burlap and you might need to go and loosen soil around your tree um and I think that one of the biggest things that can cause browning is also just watering. We don't think a lot about watering our plants in the winter, um particularly our trees, but we really have a lot of dry conditions. So trying to remember to water um and then if all these things and you've done all this stuff and I'm sure you have and been caring for it, it's all right. Sometimes this happens. This has been a rough season with some bitter cold snaps that were unexpected. And so sometimes when we go from heat like that to extreme cold and the trees didn't have time to prepare themselves they can brown um so check those things out and those would be my recommendations to start thanks for your question we also see that ponderosa trees in the mountains they have a lot of brown spots is that a similar problem will they live <laughs> yeah so um again a couple of years ago when we had a crazy cold snap that was unexpected and our trees hadn't hardened off it caused so much browning and death that you could see all across Denver and Colorado oftentimes so we'll see those browning that browning again like i said from extreme weather conditions and lack of water um we're definitely dealing with a drought here now our next question comes from Reed Morris a listener in Centennial This year we had starting with one tomato plant but then spreading to a couple of others what was I believe called leaf curl they essentially stunted and stopped growing altogether i let them go in the garden for maybe another month or two against some advice that i should have pulled them immediately and i'm wondering if there's anything to be done to prevent that from happening next year leaving this area fallow or planting a cover crop or just even how to prevent leaf curl in general on my tomato plants. 
Hi, Reed. Thank you for the question. I hear you. All of us were dealing with um, leaf curl on our tomato plants this year. Farmers as well. I was freaking out. Um, that extreme heat, tomatoes really don't like 100-degree weather, kind of like me. They like that nice 80-degree weather, and they tend to start doing that. Um, so really, you know, staying on a consistent watering schedule is good. Sometimes people start wanting to water a lot, but tomatoes just need every couple of days deep watering. Um, and, you know, at some point in the summer when it was that hot, you could, if you wanted, kind of cool the plants down with a little bit of water. Um, in terms of people recommending you to have pulled it out, I don't know that that's true for me in terms of specifically leaf curl itself. Sometimes because when we get a certain type of um, issue in our plants like leaf curl and their um, whole system being weakened by this super heat, then it can cause that whole plant to become weaker and become a vector for disease for your other plants. But leaf curl in itself isn't something that necessarily um, spreads in that way. In terms of what to do for next year, practicing crop rotation with your plants and vegetables is always a good thing. That said, tomatoes is kind of a unique one that people debate whether it should be rotated. Um, and there's different studies that prove, um, you know, different things in it. Uh, I follow the rule of thumb of trying to rotate tomatoes every three years. If you have any disease, and I've been dealing with that a lot because of these extreme um, temperatures, then you definitely want to rotate out of your bed um, for the next year. And then I'd like you to think about maybe picking some more heat-tolerant varieties to plant. So some heat-tolerant varieties that we plant and that we saw doing well, and we grow mostly heirloom tomatoes, are the San Marzano, the Cherokee Purple, the Black Cherry Tomato, and the Yellow Pear, which are pretty common ones that you could find. And Fatima, what about tomatoes that have some of those odd little green spots and the areas of dark discoloration? Those showed up later in the season after the snow. Is that from the snow or are those safe to eat? Yeah, so there's been a whole lot of different kinds of discoloration. One common one we've seen is sun scald. So it's when, you know, one side of your tomato will kind of have this like lighter, whiter color. And that's just kind of, I think of it as the, the fruit getting sunburned. Um, in terms of some of these spotting um, we've seen or coming out of that extreme frost and then having a little bit of your tomatoes um, growing, that could be from it kind of getting cold and damaged and then growing out of that. Other times when you see um, spots on tomatoes that look like canker sores, those can be um, bacterial. And that can be concerning because when you have um, sort of a bacterial issue, that can spread around to your other plants. So one thing I would really um, consider is making sure to dispose of those plants in the garbage and planting in a new area next year. And generally, your biggest indicators of what's going on with your tomatoes, even in the fruit, is to look at the leaves and your leaves are kind of the biggest vectors of disease for your tomato plants. Hmm. So just being able to see the whole system. Now we have another question. This one is from Lisa Grime in Arvada. We have a backyard vegetable garden that has been fallow for a number of years. And uh, we're wondering what we can do this fall to make a better vegetable garden come spring, whether we should be amending the soil now or tilling it or um, adding compost or if it's better just to wait until springtime. Thanks. 
Hi, Lisa. Um, well, your question just opens up a world of possibility. And while it's also like opens up a world of possible work. So um, I want to encourage you to get out there. And I think that some of the best things you can really do to start out any garden is start out with getting a soil test. You can mail that in to CSU Extension. It'll give you some ideas of what's going on with your um, soil so that you can think about exactly how to amend it in the spring. Um, I think the other thing to think about is building your beds now and deciding what kind of beds you want. If you want to do raised beds, which is um, how we build, if you want to put them within wooden structures, which in a small home garden um, is what I would recommend, just makes care for it easier. So I would think a little bit about that. Um, one thing I always like to tell people is build your beds and build your paths. You shouldn't be amending and working on your paths and then stepping on them. So build those out. And I think that um, right now during these times, it's it's great fun family activity um, to do. Don't overwhelm yourself with a project so large it turns you off. Um, but yeah, start with the design um, and observing your garden and get ready for more amending, tilling, and building them out um, more for planting in the spring. Sounds like lots of work, but good work. Yeah. And now to a listener who is dealing with a very common problem. This is Judy Leidick in Wheat Ridge. We've had an increasing number of Japanese beetles the last couple of years, and they seem to munch on something different each year. This summer, they infested our grapevines and ornamental vines, and we've been knocking them off into soapy water each morning. But can anything be done now or in the spring to keep them away next year? Yeah, so this is a question I get all the time, and I hear you. It's painful. Um, you know, Japanese beetles um, came to the U.S. really um, in the early 1900s and don't have natural predators here like they do um, in other regions. And so um, they're, they're a significant challenge for gardeners. So I think it's important when we have any insect issues to think of the life cycle of that insect first. So so with the Japanese beetle, you have this egg, this grub, and adult stages. And what we really see is that in June, the, the grub will turn into a pupa. It emerges from the soil in late um, June and July as an adult to mate and lay eggs. And then the females live for a few weeks feeding on our, all our plants that we love. And then they go back to the grass um, to lay more eggs. So... One um, thing that can be helpful is really to brush them off of the plant so that you're preventing at least um, it from magnifying and the females going back and laying more eggs um, that emerge later. So we like to get them early in the morning before the Japanese beetles um, can really open up their wings and fly. So they're kind of just sitting there paralyzed and um, brushing them off with a small little hand broom and getting rid of those can help um, as one defense measure. Another thing is if we know that, you know, they're in the grass. Um, and it has been proven that applying milky spore, which kills um, those grubs, is effective as a grass treatment. And it usually takes about a year to five years. But again, you can't control them in your neighbor's um, garden. So um, for me, I really focus, particularly with my landscaping clients, on not planting things I know are highly susceptible. We know that plants like grapes, roses, um, hops and certain plants um, 
really get it. The climbing Virginia creeper people love to have. Um, so I, I, I don't really plant any kinds of roses anymore. Um, it's mm. just too much. But wild roses, um, the ones that kind of crawl on the ground, those are way more resistant to Japanese beetles. The other thing that I would speak to you about is these pheromone bags. I know a lot of people ask me about that. Um, it's been really proven that they're not very effective and can end up attracting a lot more Japanese beetles to your yard. My only recommendation is if you ever used a pheromone bag that ideally you have such a big property where you could put it really far away from the things you want to detract it from, but otherwise don't recommend using those that much. But I hear your struggle. It's a pain that we all have to deal with here in Colorado. Um, and with all insect control, don't let them defeat you. Just stay on top of it. Well, Fatima, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Fatima Imad is a gardening and landscape expert from Frontline Farming and Mile High Farmers. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.